All right, we are on. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Barbell Nerds Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Will Rattel, and co-host, Sean Fantuzzi. We have a really cool guest today. His name is Adam Menner. He is um, a performance coach at, I guess you're the head performance coach over at Varsity House in New York, and he was referred to us by Juwan Griffith. For those of you who listened to that episode, that was a good one, too. So, Adam, who are you? Uh, what's your background? How'd you get to Varsity House? Um, what kind of athletes do you work with? Just give us a little background on you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, thanks for, for having me on, fellas. You know, obviously just the opportunity to speak with other coaches and connect with people, I think is super special. And, and uh, during this time, I think post-COVID, if you will, just the ability to do this is a lot of fun and you can just connect with more people. So uh, just about myself. Yeah. So what most people don't know, I usually tell my story, right? And what does that consist of? So I was actually an intern at Joe DeFranco's when he really? was in Wyckoff. That's and awesome. so he was at Breen Ave. And so my first taste, I was literally 20 years old, 19 or 20 years old. And my first taste of that was seeing all these high level pro athletes. We're seeing all these high level college athletes. And I linked up with a guy named Cam Joss, who's actually the performance director at IU. And he's a really, really good friend of mine to this day. And so he kind of just gave me the ins and outs a little bit. And so I really was fortunate to understand sports performance training, if you will. So just right up front. Fast forward, though, when Joe went down to On It in Texas, when he partnered up there a little bit, I went on to where I am now, Barcelona's gym. Same thing. I was an intern, started from the ground level. But it was a little different in the fact that at Varsito's gym, training is a priority. There's some smart guys there, but the service aspect of dealing with people and clients was way higher. We call it our GSF, our give or shit factor, which is funny, but it's, it's the truth. It's, and it was everything from world-class service, onboarding clients. What does this process look like? Retention. And so I was very, <clears throat> excuse me, very lucky to have that mix of true training knowledge and information plus world-class experience and from there i began to read and create my own you know inference on what training is and that's kind of led me to where i am now so now i'm actually a partner with the two owners of that gym in a company called business to strength where we help gym owners in the private sector basically just automize and scale their business and we offer performance training in like terms of knowledge like courses and what have you but then a lot of it's on the business side and that's kind of why i asked a little bit and then i'm also the director of performance of Barcelona's gym i've worked with everybody you name it high school athletes espn's top 100 nba all-stars nfl guys the whole nine and so i'm very fortunate to kind of be where i am right now awesome um yeah let's get into some some training stuff so one thing that I saw you post on Instagram, I thought was really cool and you went into some good depth, but I'll have to just elaborate a little bit here for anyone listening to this um, about the role of adductor strength and just the role of the, or the function of adductors in sprinting and movement and agility, change of direction, all that stuff. Um, and you talked a little bit about front foot elevated split squats. Um, like the rear foot elevated split squats is really what is the most more or more common exercise. Um, just, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Um, just, yeah. Give us your take on it. Yeah. I think when you look at athletic performance, when I look at the human body, I, I think about what was it designed to do? And when I look at what it was designed to do, I think of freedom. I think of movement. I think of just, we should be moving and try planar competency. I think that the brain, right? We have a lot of central focus now. So our nervous systems are a little bit more heightened, if you will, just because we're on computers and our phones all the time. So 
when I think about that, when you look at movement, I look at the pelvis because in my opinion, the pelvis is a steering wheel for power, no matter what you do, right? This, the pelvis will dictate in terms of running and gait, how you shift anterior, posterior pelvic tilt and the adductor specifically more so the foreheads of the adductor work eccentrically. And most people don't understand that. They think that they actually adduct the hip or the femur inside of the ilium or inside of the pelvis. And really it's actually an eccentric mechanism, meaning it's really, really good at stopping on a dime. It's really, really good at holding in those positions when you have load, whether it's axial like a squat or whether it's change your direction on the ground. So for example, when you squat, if you free squat, your knees kind of come in a little bit. Why is that? Because it's going to eccentrically pull in. You're going to get a little, little bit of internal rotation because you're going to stack your ribs on top of your pelvis, and that's where you're going to get a lot of power. Mm. But in sport performance, the same thing. If I'm changing direction on a dime and I have to get into that, let's say, right hip as I plan on that right side, my adductor is going to eccentrically load and pull me into that position, and then it's going to slingshot me out, and I'm going to shift to my opposite side. So when I look at that, when I think about, okay, well, where does this player role in my training program? I think about when I look at speed or sports performance training, I think speed is the hierarchy of team sport athleticism. And I look at the phases of the sprint. And when we talk about that specific movement, Will, that you're addressing, I look at, at what phase of the sprint is the adductor most used. And when you look at it kinematically, it's usually acceleration, right? Because I have the greatest ranges of motion. I'm at 90 degrees because of my torso angle and my trajectory. So if I know that, something like the propulsion arc, when I squat, I'm at almost 90 degrees. And research has shown that at 90 degrees of hip flexion is where I get the most adductor and hamstring work. So earlier in the phases of your training, even if it's lifting or speed, I like to do uh, rear foot elevated squats where my knee can travel past my toe and I get that 90 degree. Mm -hmm. Then to introduce the front foot elevated where I get internal rotation and adductor load is usually in top speed or usually later in the block where I'm trying to handle more volume in let's say a strength training cycle, which again marries up with a speed cycle, right? Because we know that force output and ground contact time is lighter during later phases of the sprint. And so I have to load that the same way in the weight room, which is more bilateral lifts, right? Like unilateral earlier on in the block. So that's kind of where I wanted to give some context there in terms of where I fit that movement in. And do you do that like movement that. With, with all your athletes? Or I, I shouldn't say all because nothing's absolute, but with, with a vast majority of them too? Yeah, I think it's, it's also based upon where they are and meeting that athlete where they are, right? So I truly don't believe I squat deadlift, but I don't think there's such thing as a true bilateral lift. If you just look at the natural asymmetries of the body, if I was to put any three of us on a force plane and we were to squat, you might get 60% load on your right side, which is usually the case with most humans. You may get 55, 40% on that left side. So yes, I am bilaterally squatting, but if I want to truly maximize my athlete's health and performance, I will then yes, have them do unilateral adductor work pretty much universally unless it's an abnormal case based off an assessment that I have or something like that. Awesome, man. Adam, I have a question about your front foot. Have you noticed a particular height, uh, one plate, two plate, four inches, two inches that has been like, obviously everyone has diff different anthropometrics, but have you noticed something that's better or from a height perspective of that front foot that's, I guess more efficient for some people than others, like depending on the athlete. For sure. You measure yeah. femur like basically. 
Exact. I mean, that's exactly it, actually. So for femur length, I measure femur length usually when I do an assessment. Yeah. Just because of that, right? Like if you're a six three mm-hmm. guy, then I know. Okay. So my ratio usually is if your femur is eighteen inches or longer, <clears throat> you're gonna go four inches. If you are basically mm-hmm. if your femur length is, I think it's sixteen or lower, I'm gonna have you go two inches on a box. And the key there is I like barefoot. I like three points of contact, training that arch so you have stability. Internally rotate the knee over the like toe. That. And then just that. centrically load that adductor. Do you do the floating heel or you like uh, play it under the play it under the ball, play it under the foot and have that space? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I will just depending on it. Like if I'm working with a basketball player, usually what they do is they have these high sneakers, as we all know. And so they foot lose. Prisons. Yeah, exactly. They lose. <laughs> they lose that sensation of the ground. And we know that the brain seeks stability. So by the brain trying to seek stability, you're going to lose that transverse arch and you get a lot of high arching. And if you get high arching, what's going to happen is it's going to supinate the ankle. If that supinates the ankle, works up the chain, it's going to rotate the pelvis either which way. So I've found with basketball players going barefoot, don't need to put any wedges or anything underneath. They can just feel all three points of contact using those inches. Um, It usually works. It usually works. So... Have you had any, I guess, and this is kind of going on, on a little tangent here, as, yeah, far as, male versus, as far as male versus female, because the female hip socket is just a little bit different. Um, is that your puppy, Will? That's my dog, yeah. <laughs> He's just sitting <laughs> out here. Um, um, have you noticed there's much of a difference between male versus female athletes in how high you stack that front foot? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sometimes the same thing, and but okay. – Women in general typically have weaker adductors than guys do. I mean, most men have weak adductors, but women have really weak adductors. Mm-hmm. So for them, I just try to get range of motion. So I might not even stack them. I'll just say, hey, let's work within what we have here. Let me see where you compensate or what's some second compensatory patterns. And then we'll kind of go from there. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I think we can get into some really specific stuff here because you talked about your assessment that you do. Yeah. What does that consist of? Is it different male to female? Is it different 15-year-old to 30-year-old NBA player? Um, and how often are you assessing these guys? Yeah. So, I mean, my standard, I try to keep it really simple. I think sometimes what happens is, is people are like, so we're going to do an assessment and it's an hour and you're like, that's no, right? I don't need that. But there is some specifics that you do like. And so, again, back to kind of the model that I've created at Barcelos Gym, is I believe individuals fall under two separate categories. You can either be a compressed individual or an expanded individual, meaning that if I'm a, let's like all of us, if we're really strong guys and we like to lift, we're probably more compressed. Why are we more compressed? Just because of the anatomical positions we put ourselves in when we lift. And then we have those breathing patterns. Those breathing patterns in the diaphragm have a relationship with the pelvis. Again, if I'm box squatting and my back is like this, where it's hyperextended and I'm pushing my hips out, my abs are now right lengthened. And they're again, eccentrically oriented, but we don't want them. I want this. I want my pelvis scooped on top of my ribs. So by doing that, I'm going to have bad breathing problems. My ribs are flared a little bit. We know that if my ribs are flared and I can't get air into my body, that's going to increase sympathetic tone into the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So you're probably compressed. I mean, you probably walk around, you have a lot of external rotation. You can't get into internal rotation. You probably in your thorax, you're probably more compressed here, which is more acts like a pump handle as composed Mm -hmm. to right here, a bucket handle, right? The second person is like an expanded individual. 
someone who's expanded is more like a female or like a runner or like a marathon runner or any woman who's going to walk into the door who doesn't have extensive strength training basics. Like if you're a woman who does CrossFit, you're probably compressed. But if I'm like a 16 year old soccer girl, who's probably only benched 10 to 15 pound dumbbells in my life, you're probably expanded because you run around all the time. And so by that, you're more here and that can be determined. And this is getting a little deeper. That can be determined by what's called the ISA angle in the ISA angle, basically where the top of my ribs form in and out. And there's a lot of debate about it, but I've found it to great success because of the next two tests. So with that, I simply find that by just having them breathe. So I get them into a 90, 90 position on a wall. Where do you breathe? Where do you compensate? I'll have them do a toe touch. I'll have them do an active straight leg test. Just line your back, bring that leg back or an active knee touch. And if they can get past 110 degrees, they're typically expanded. If they cannot, they're typically compressed because I can tell by that, that that's where their hip locks them up. And I know their hip locks them up because their breathing patterns because of the aforementioned stuff. So that's kind of just movement in terms of breathing. Because I know if that's how you respond, I'll have exercises A, B, C, and D lined up for you for that. I love but that. I love speed. I think, you know, if you guys have probably seen, I think speed is the hierarchy of athletic development. Um, just for so many reasons, health reasons, neurologically, it's research has shown that sprinting rewires the brain, especially in younger kids and cognitive function, cardiovascular health, et cetera. So for speed, yes, yeah, so I could have you line up on a line and be like, I'm going to test your 10 yard. But I use what's called the G flight. If you guys have heard of mm-hmm. the G flight. Oh yeah. Have one. So the G flight's so simple. Like sure. We use force plates as well, but it's just too long. I, I only use force plates with like my MBA guys or people who are playing, paying like high level, even adults. Like if I have an adult who's like a businessman or a CEO and he's coming in, I'm going to throw him on the force plate. He's going to get the Norman tech boots the whole nine. But for an average person, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For an average person that comes in on the G flight, this is what's cool is I simply look at your reactive strength index mm-hmm. and here's how it goes. There's three categories. So we did your movement as part one. I look at your reactive strength index. If you have an RSI of about one to two, you probably need more max strength work because mm-hmm. you just need to work on force. And that's pretty yeah, much yeah. there, right? Mm-hmm. If you're between two and three, they're probably in the middle. So maybe if you kept strike training, you would have additional performance benefits, but there'd be a trade-off, but you could still continue. And if you have three or higher, you probably are strong enough. I don't need to increase force. What I, I need to increase is tendon, elastic, <clears throat> excuse me, elasticity, exposure to higher velocities to help counterbalance that force that you're already given. So that's number two. So I can just organize it by that. I could be like, okay, this guy is more, he's better in acceleration because he has a higher RSI or what have you. This person is better in top speed because they had a lower RSI. They're very elastic, but they need a little bit more force. So you're using the the G flight to basically paint a picture of the force velocity curve profiling for that client. Super simple. Yeah. And and I can send you guys a graphic of what we use too for this. If you guys would like. Absolutely. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Amazing. So of course. And so it's super simple because then I just collecting data and then I can write my programming. The last component of that. So the third component is strength. And we did a big study. So we tested five internally. It was pretty cool. So I tested 500 athletes over two years. And basically what I found is with unilateral strength, that let's say if I had a graph here, so on each axis, that athletes 
who could single leg squat any variation you want. It could be like distal loading. It could be axle loading from the top. If you could single leg squat more than 1.25 to 1.75 your body weight, there were no additional performance benefits from getting stronger. So I mean, you said 1.25 to 1.75. Exactly. Exactly. So meaning if you weigh a 200 pounds and you could single leg squat 315 pounds, you're probably good. There's no single leg. This is not bilateral. So it's like, you're probably good. There's no additional performance. And And by single leg, you are you just talking about like a generic split squat? Yeah, anything. Oh, okay, any okay. So we okay. pick. I mean, in the study, what I picked though was actually a safety bar reverse lunge. So okay, like, oh, okay. Uh, I've been doing. I've been doing those, and I love those. So that yeah. works out nice. I'm going to go and test that next week. <laughs> but I think it's just because it's safer, right? Like yeah. having a bar, a kid do a barbell reverse lunge is just not right. probably the best option. So safety yeah. bar, you can hold on to the rack a little bit for some mm-hmm. stability, but that's it. I just want to see what you have. Mm-hmm. So there was no additional performance benefit, meaning like their times did not improve on their sprints or their jumps. However, athletes that were zero to one, two, five saw greater sprint time improvements by getting to that 1.25, yeah. 1.75 number. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so, and that's 500 kids. And that was like different levels too. I had like, we had the pro guys, the college right. guys, the high school guys, and that was universal across the board. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, let's piggyback on that. So once they get to, cause that, I mean, we just categorize those guys as strong enough. Like um, that debate's always going on that that's strong enough in that sample size. Um, like how much does the program change typically for um, your guys? Yeah, I think, I think there's a sliding scale because like you said earlier, you can't speak in absolutes, but there is a paradigm here when it comes to like true strength training and true like performance and health, because those are two separate athletic actions. Yeah. Now not to go on a tangent, but it's like, I mean, I guess this is a podcast, right? So we could go on. (laughs) Go for it. So in lifting, (laughs) in lifting, what happens is, is you get a lot of bilateral compression, right? Think about it. Yeah. Bar axial loads. I'm in extension. My ribs aren't expanded. I'm using the VM maneuver, right? Balsamic maneuver by filling my belly with air against the brace. That's not true core strength because I'm extended. I can't use my abs out there. So I'm filling everything with air. Again, that's literally like shooting down on my pelvis. My pelvis is doing this, right? Anterior pelvic tilt. Again, I'm getting some internal rotation. That's going to cause my feet to do this, right? While I'm squatting. That's Mm -hmm. because everybody hears that. But when you look at sport, it's the opposite. And this is kind of the contrast thing that we were talking about. Yeah. When I look at sport, I get excessive internal rotation. I need a little bit of anterior pelvic tilt. I need to be able to stay compressed via the piston mechanism, right? Where my diaphragm and pelvis work together as like a compressor and then a slingshot. I need to be able to get into each side of my adductor. So those are two completely different athletic actions. And I say the sliding scale because if I have a 13-year-old junior athlete, who is phenomenally athletic, can withstand his own body's weight worth of force, does he need to continue to just get stronger because I have to tell him to get stronger? Or can we just get away with weighted push-ups or single leg work and maybe really never even touch any of the advanced lifts because this kid's already going to be really good? Maybe he's just a little bit more genetically gifted. 
as opposed to the opposite, right, on the other side of the scale, I still have a 13-year-old kid who is not genetically gifted, cannot handle his own body weight through time and force, I mean, through time and space with acting on gravity and all the other things. So yes, he needs to get stronger just to be able to withstand those forces. And then you keep making your way up the line, up the line, up the line. If I worked with an NBA player, these guys, I mean, like an NBA player I'm working with right now has a 41-inch vertical. He has a, his average 15-yard sprint time is like a 189 laser, which is like very, very fast. An average kid probably is running like a 205, 209 on the laser. He's at 189. When we did his strength test, he kind of fit right in there. He was at like 1.15 to 1.25 unilateral strength. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, this guy's on a contract. He's got a lot of money on the line. By just getting him, quote unquote, stronger, is that going to yield any greater performance benefits in my mind? And for me, my rationale is no, it's not. Let's just get you healthier. Let's maybe just do some isometrics to get your tendons and tensile strength and change something mm -hmm. you're connected to. But let's keep sprinting. Let's keep jumping, making sure you feel good. Um, and then I think that will carry out the rest of the way. Whereas like, then you have a genetically or an athlete who's not as genetically gifted, who maybe is like a D3 athlete. And I always say you can only raise the floor, not the ceiling, right? So like, why do, why do all three of us have to work out so much? Because we're trying to overcompensate the lack of genetics that we don't have. And sure, we're, we're, we're genetically gifted in some form, right? Like I'm only 5'9", but I have the femur length of someone that's 6'3". So I'm normally good at running and jumping, but I'm not in the NBA. I'm not playing high-level D1 basketball and, and so forth and so on. So I think understanding that paradigm and meeting the athlete where they are is crucial from progressing to answer your question, Will, from category to category with each athlete. Yeah. That was a lot to unpack there, but I'm a yeah. huge fan of it. Oh, yeah. Um, and I just – I've trained – so before I moved back to Pennsylvania, uh, I was working with the basketball team at UND. Now Will is. Um, and cool. – just getting those guys even in the in season was when we did like if we lifted it was lifts of one or two um it was super elastic it was feel good throw the bar down get some confidence rolling and we tried to lift as much as we could probably like five days a week for 30 uh, the micro dosing uh, process yeah and um a lot of the prep work especially like pre-practice pre-game stuff was just some isometric holds really to make sure those tendons uh especially in the foot and the ankle are solid because i mean how easy or how often do you see a basketball player roll their ankle all the time right and if they can go if they can become more confident and this is a completely different topic but if they can become more confident without ankle bracing or ankle taping who is that ever a huge win for a basketball player oh for huge sure. For sure. I mean, I always ask new coaches, like, why are some of the most successful players you see on the court the most lazy? They know how to, they know how to conserve a lot of their tensile strength. Exactly. They know how to. And it's, it's even higher, too, neurologically. These guys just have something that we don't. You know, they can remove the neural e-break, if you will. Mm -hmm. and they're just allowed to perform on the spot. But, like, they're not going to get fired up to lift weights and get in the weight room. But they just have – they know they're genetically gifted. They conserve a lot of energy, and they just pick and choose their spots, and that's what makes them, you know, elite players. Yeah. Well said. Well said. When, when you're working with these 
basketball guys that are so tall, like, like Sean said, he used to work with basketball guys. I'm working with basketball guys. Um, there was another video I saw of you. It was you're working with a basketball player, had a medicine ball on the floor. You would swipe it over to one side and it was like, you're teaching him to stay low and drive in a certain way. Um, touch on, touch on that drill specifically, what you're working on um, and how, how it's working for you and your athletes. Yeah, with taller athletes, I think that it's very hard to get them into these loaded positions, like to load the lever, if you will, meaning if a kid's 6'9", he's never going to get into like a good 40 stance. Yeah. And so he's never going to be able to sprint. And I'm never going to try to get him there. I don't I think I'd be doing him a disservice. So that drill in particular, I'm checking a lot of boxes. I'm getting internal rotation. I'm getting him to rotate his hips each way. I'm getting him to drop his shin angle instinctively because if you look at how someone would dribble a basketball, torso drops, shin drops. So I'm getting horizontal propulsion a little bit. And then lastly, the thing I love about it too is I get what's called a false step. And the false step is basically what you see in all of sport, right? Instead of taking one step forward, I can't push and generate force, right? No human right. being actually creates force. So you get forced by gravity and gravity mm -hmm. pulling upon an individual. And so if I can use that to my advantage, I'm falling and I can push back behind me and generate some more of that horizontal propulsion, if you will. So I like that drill a lot, especially for the taller guys, like you said. It just it checks those boxes and it gets them there. Plus, they play basketball, so they're comfortable there and they like being in that position. Whereas, like, watch a football player do that drill. It's awesome. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, basketball that. players are super unique athletes. I love working with, with basketball players. I also work with volleyball players, and they're pretty well, similar. And, very similar. And, uh, that kind of way. So um, we're kind of running low on time here now. Um, cool. Sean, you got anything uh, – uh, anything else for Adam before we wrap it up? This is a little just bit. Uh, so I have two questions, a little outside the box, completely yeah. unrelated to training and everything. But like, and I kind of stole this question from Jay DeMeo. If you know him at all, he yeah. uh, is one of my, one of my good buddies in the field, but you spend a lot of time in the weight room, spend a lot of time in the gym. You're take care of all your athletes. You set yourself two years, 500 athletes you've tested. Like what's, what's that escape from your work what's that escape from the job look like what's what does adam do to kind of downshift and down regulate his working brain yeah uh you could ask my wife i guess <laughs> but um no i think i think just understanding when to unplug i think as coaches we go through these like this life cycle where earlier on you want to do as much as you can and you want to prove your worth and you want to just try to do so much all the time. And you think that that's your ticket, right? And it's important. It is. Mm -hmm. I and mean, if you want to achieve something awesome, you got to put in a little extra work, but the answer is twofold. I think it's one I've learned to compartmentalize my time and effort a lot more. So I wake up very early. I get three hours of uninterrupted work done. Then I commute, hang out, eat breakfast with my wife. Then from there, when I move on to the day, I already have everything mapped out exactly into like, what are my $100 jobs? What are my $50 jobs? What are my $10 jobs? I have to do these things on these days, check. And then if I feel like I'm running out of time, I'll just step away. And then I'll be like, all right, take a breather, go on a break, what have you. But in reality, something that I've done is I kind of just set little parameters for myself, meaning like at this time, don't check your phone every night. So like, Hey, I'm not going to check my phone. I'm going to eat dinner with my wife. We're going to go watch TV, hang out, go for a walk. 
on the weekends, typically Saturday at about 12 to Monday, I try to not be on my phone at all a lot, maybe check it here or there. And by living within those rules, if you will, you really get to unplug. So like when Monday comes around again and you're waking up super early, you're like, all right, cool. Now it's time to hit the week and you've prepared, you've had all this stuff ready and you, you can consolidate your efforts a lot more. Because I always ask these coaches when they come in, I say to them, especially in our consulting group, I'll always ask them like, hey, I want you to write down where you spend your time, every single thing. Like what time do you wake up? When do you go to the bathroom? What do you do from this time to this time? And like, and if you do all of that and you really do a personal time audit, you can see how much wasted time in your day is. You probably spend two hours a day on your phone, two hours a day of training, that's four hours, an hour of lunch, that's five hours. And then that just adds up every day. Let's say you do that five days a week, that's 25 hours of time. Just like that, that you didn't even realize where you're like, I'm going to cut everything in half. I just got a day back of time. Powerful stuff. Yeah. So I think a personal time audit for me has been one of the biggest things. And I recommend that to everybody. So create rules for yourself um, and and abide by them. Yeah. I need to do that, especially, especially in like collegiate strength conditioning, you have all these weird 30 minute, one hour breaks where it's like, what are you going to do? And you end up just not being productive at all. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll just go up to my office and I'll like check my email. And then I just end up sitting on the computer for, 30 minutes not doing anything and like yeah that's <laughs> i'm gonna have to take that, that piece of advice from you and actually narrow some of that stuff down cut that out for sure and i think too but like you should have those times like it sounds insane but like if it's on the calendar it, it happens meaning like why can't you be like i'm just making something up why couldn't you be like hey at five o'clock or like every day at five o'clock to five thirty, i go on social media Mm-hmm. And I just do whatever I want. I can go through all the reels and TikToks. I can do whatever I want. That's my time to do that because then you know it's coming. It's like, all right, I'm going to get my stuff done, focus, and then I'm going to yeah. bull crap for an hour at the end of the day. It's like, cool. That's how you unwind. My time in the morning when I wake up, I watch, I'm a huge Marvel fan. If you couldn't tell from the shirt, uh, <laughs> I literally go on YouTube when I'm making my breakfast and find like Easter videos or updates on the marvel movies that i didn't know updates it like it's that's yeah. my getaway which it's is awesome. fine though but that's what thing. Yeah. some people love to spend their mornings doing something like that because that charges your brain right and exactly the better you can get your brain in a better spot you're going to perform better every time agreed. Yeah. agreed and thank you and on my second question and i wrote the name down of who i think this is going to be so this is a complete guess but as we do with all of our guests we ask them uh who should we get on here next or who do you recommend we reach out to to speak to about um everything and anything so i wrote that i wrote the name down and i'm i complete guess but i bet i know who it's going to be who should we have on here next you have the name written down i think i do all right sean light not the name i had written down but i do respect that because sean light is a great great man Who'd you have written down? Cam. Cam Jost. Yeah. Cam would be a fun guy to talk to. Yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have Fergus on here real soon. Fergus is a friend. So uh cool. yeah. Uh Sean Light is a brilliant, brilliant man. Yeah, he's I'm part of his group and we connected a while ago and we kinda like helped each other out a little bit. He helped me get the group growing. I've kind of helped his group a little That's bit. That's cool. And I like I just love his approach and what he does. He's just so professional, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of like he's still staying away if you will meaning like we all see it on social media you it's easy to like 
get into the algorithm or be like, this is my program by this, but it's very short lived. And he talks a lot about personal growth and development and changing who you are as a human is going to ultimately dictate your career path and what happens. So awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Adam. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you, you speak about Sean Light as a professional. You can definitely tell you're a professional um, just by speaking to you now. And it's a pleasure getting to know you um, a yeah, little bit. A lot of stuff to digest, man. Yeah, yeah I'm excited to go back. It's good for all of us. So, Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thanks for having me.